Go ahead and open your Bibles with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 987. 1 Thessalonians 5, we're going to conclude our reflections today on this one command. Lord willing, after I get back, we're going to finish 1 Thessalonians. It was kind of, wasn't my intent to, you know, break the series up with six weeks there, but that's how life goes sometimes. 1 Thessalonians 5. And before we read God's word, let's pray together. Holy Father, please help us now by your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes and our hearts that we might behold wondrous things out of your law. Give us grace to embrace it with faith. Lord, please, particularly as we reflect on prayer, make us a praying church, praying people, people that cry out to you day and night, who devote ourselves to prayer, who ask, seek, and knock, uh, verbalizing our faith. Help me, Lord, now to preach with clarity and power. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, God's word says, Pray without ceasing. This is the word of God. The year is 1857. New York City is a brutal and dangerous place. These are the days of violent street gangs, feuding clans of immigrants, barrels of hard liquor, knife fights, illegal gambling. These are the days of street children, pickpockets, and prostitutes. New York City in 1857 was as immoral as Las Vegas is today and as dangerous as Juarez, Mexico. Well, in 1857, also in New York City, an evangelist named Jeremiah Lamphere. He's only 41 years old, and he decides to start a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting for businessmen during the lunch hour. At the first prayer meeting, only six men show up, but they pray. A week later, 20 show up. A week later, 40 are there, and they decide to begin holding daily prayer meetings. Within a few weeks, there were daily prayer meetings at 20 different locations throughout New York City, and there were unbelievers showing up literally asking, what must I do to be saved? A few months later, similar prayer meetings were being held coast to coast. And, and this is probably a portion of American history you're not probably very familiar with. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of the prayer revival of 1858. Anybody? Like, like two or three. It's sad. I mean, you can go to secular newspapers and read about this, that something really unusual is going on in New York City with all these people praying and people becoming Christians. Well, anyway, a few months later, similar meetings were being held coast to coast, some having up to six to 7,000 people in attendance. They estimate that at its peak, as many as 50,000 people per week were being converted during this revival, and by the end of it, around one million Americans had professed faith in Christ. One particular young man was not saved in this revival, but really transformed. Uh, you may have heard of him. His na name was D.L. Moody. This revival spread to the British Isles and other countries where similar results were seen. They estimate that roughly 10% of the populations of Ireland, Scotland, and Wales were saved during this great outpouring of God's Spirit. The impact was remarkable and obvious. There was a shocking decrease in public drunkenness, a shocking decrease in crime, a decrease in gambling, prostitution, domestic violence. Literally, bars had to shut down because of lack of business, and churches needed to build new and bigger sanctuaries. And why was it? Well, it all went back to this one evangelist starting a prayer meeting. A prayer meeting that changed a city and eventually changed the entire world. Now, why is it that the Lord seems to unusually bless the prayers of his people? 
When God's people come together in prayer meetings, why is it that there's more power, more fruitfulness in that than if those same individuals stayed home and prayed for the same requests? Why is that? How practically might we take advantage of these same blessings on our families, on our church, on our nation? With God's help, these are some of the thoughts that we're going to be considering this morning. Well, it's with this that we return to our little mini-series on praying without ceasing. We're actually concluding it today. We've been studying 1 Thessalonians for a long time now, and if you look at your Bibles, we've come to the conclusion which contains a wide variety of commands on a wide variety of topics. And as you can see there in verse 17, God commands us to pray without ceasing. And understanding what that command means and how we can put that into practice has been the goal of this series. To quickly remind you of what we've learned thus far, uh, we looked at that command, pray without ceasing, carefully in context. And what we discovered is that it's really a rather simple, straightforward command. It's not really characterized by complicated grammar or theology. God is commanding all who claim to be Christians to devote themselves to prayer, to literally saturate their lives with prayer. For the believer in Jesus, prayer should not be this minor thing, you know, say rattling off your prayer before you go to bed, you know, this 30-second thing that you've memorized. No, prayer ought to take up a pretty significant part of your life. Now, since God's Spirit helps us obey His commands, uh, there must be some way whereby we can become people devoted to prayer, who pray without ceasing. And that's why two weeks ago and last week we talked about some different strategies for devoting ourselves to prayer. I actually covered 10 of these. I won't go over them all now. You can watch or listen to the sermons online if you want to. But there are practical things that you can do to pray without ceasing so that prayer becomes as natural as breathing. Well, like I said, this morning we're concluding this series on praying without ceasing. And let me say two things quick up front. First, believe it or not, but this morning we're going to be talking about just one strategy to saturate your life in prayer. Uh, I'd begun... Earlier last week, putting together my skeleton for this morning, and I actually had eight suggestions, eight strategies for praying more. Uh, But as I began working on one, it grew, it grew, it grew, until it became kind of an entire sermon of its own. Uh, What that means is there's an awful lot about prayer I'm not able to say in this particular series. Because of that, let, let me recommend you three books. If you want to learn more about prayer, read more about prayer, these are three books that I'd heartily recommend to you. The first is entitled Sense and Nonsense About Prayer by Layman Strauss. That's Sense and Nonsense About Prayer by Layman Strauss. This is, I think, my favorite all-around book on prayer. Uh, It's basically just straightforward, no-nonsense Bible teaching about what prayer is and how to do it. Very, very helpful. And it's really short. It's kind of shocking how much material he packs into 123 pages. So if you're looking for a short but very helpful book on prayer, check out Sense and Nonsense About Prayer by Layman Strauss. Second book I'd recommend, A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World by Paul Miller. Uh, anybody read this book here? It is in our church. I've got a couple of people. Uh, it is in our church library. The strength of this book is it teaches you how to weave prayer all throughout your daily life, uh, to have this ongoing conversation with God all day long. It's, it's really a, a very helpful book, and it's got some fascinating stories in it. It is in our church library. So if you'd like to learn more about uh, making prayer more, to, more of like just my all-day-long activity, check out A Praying Life by Paul Miller. The last book I'd recommend is entitled The Power of Prayer, The New York Revival of 1858 by Samuel Prime. This isn't a book about how to pray, but it's a a history of what I told you about in the beginning, that prayer revival that really changed the world that somehow we don't seem to remember these days. Uh, Again, it is in our church library. It's got a lot of utterly fascinating stories, uh, some of which 
you know, you can't not describe them as miraculous. Um, but if you want to read more, and it'll inspire you to pray, check out The Power of Prayer, The New York Revival of 1858, which again is in our church library. Well, having said all of that, let's turn now to this one suggestion that we're going to be discussing this morning. In addition to the strategies we've discussed and considered, here's one more way to saturate your life with prayer. And it's this. Attend and participate in your local church prayer meeting. Attend and participate in your local church prayer meeting. Now, have you ever considered how many prayer meetings there are in the Bible? I found this rather fascinating, putting this together for this morning. Of course, there's lots and lots of individual prayer. You know, one believer calling upon the name of the Lord, there's tons of that. But if you survey the entirety of Scripture, there's almost as much corporate prayer, people praying together in groups found in the Bible. For instance, after crossing the Red Sea, what did Moses do? But he basically held a prayer meeting, leading the people to thank God for the deliverance. Countless psalms are designed for congregational use, and they were sung and prayed together, both in the temple and in the synagogue. If you look at Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah is opposed by Sanballat and Tobiah, how did they oppose that opposition? But through a prayer meeting. If you look at the book of Esther, what did they do? When Esther's about to go before King Ahasuerus, when she wasn't supposed to go without being called, they held a prayer meeting. A phrase that occurs several times in the Old Testament is this phrase, a solemn assembly. A solemn assembly. And what most of these solemn assemblies were, were basically what we would call a prayer meeting. For example, in Joel 1.14, we read this, Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Now, when we move to the New Testament, what we find is something even more fascinating. The New Testament talks more about corporate prayer than it does individual prayer. I actually double-checked that because that's such an unexpected thought. But the New Testament talks more about corporate prayer, people praying together in groups, than it does individual prayer. For example, after Jesus ascended to heaven, listen to Acts 1.14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What was one trait that characterized the early church? Acts 2.24, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. When Peter was in prison, we read this account earlier in the service. What did they do? Acts 12.5. Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was being made by God or to God by the church. And after his sermon to the Ephesian elders, what did Paul do before he departed? Acts 20.36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. We could keep going, but from beginning to end, the Bible emphasizes the importance of corporate prayer, of what we would call the prayer meeting. Now again, of course, God hears and answers individual prayer. Of course, he can do great things through one person, two people crying out to the Lord. Additionally, there's nothing magical about a prayer meeting. There have been things that we've prayed in our prayer meeting for weeks and God chose to say no. So don't hear me saying there's something magical going on. And yet, nonetheless, there's no denying that there is this emphasis on gathered prayer. When God's people come together and cry out together for this or that, God seems to be especially disposed to hear and to answer. Now, I don't really get this, to be honest. I mean, there's a lot that's mysterious about prayer. I think prayer is one of those mysteries. The more you think about it, you're like, wait, how, how can that happen? Well, maybe in heaven we'll figure it out. But what seems to be going on in Scripture is this. If we gather together and pray together, that's more fruitful than if these same individuals took the prayer request home and prayed individually at home. You know, think through that. 
There's something unique, something powerful going on that I don't really know how to explain. But if we come together and pray together, that's more effective, more fruitful than if we sent the same people home to pray separately at home. Again, don't ask me how it works, but I don't think we can deny that this is what the Bible teaches. Now, when we think about America, it's not a surprise that prayer meetings have almost gone entirely extinct in our nation. I've got pastor friends who tell me we had to quit our prayer meeting because nobody would show up. I came across a statistic in preparing the sermon that less than 10% of church members in America today attend prayer meeting. Maybe you remember that for later on. Less than 10% of church members in America today attend prayer meeting. Realize that's not always been the case. Up till about, say, 75 years ago, churches understood that prayer meetings were vital. They were essential, and they were almost like a barometer of the church's overall health. We talk a lot about Charles Spurgeon here, and we know him as the Prince of Preachers, and his sermons are quite remarkable. But what you might not know about Spurgeon is that he really, really believed in the power of the prayer meeting. And he actually said that without my people praying for me, my sermons would lack power. Spurgeon said this, The condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So the prayer meeting is a graceometer. And I think you invented that word, but it's a graceometer. And from it, we may judge the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near church, it must pray. And if he be not there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. We shall never see much of a change for the better in our churches in general till the prayer meeting occupies a higher place in the esteem of Christians. Some of you may have heard that famous story of Spurgeon showing some young pastors his boiler room. You ever heard this one? Even in his lifetime, Spurgeon was considered a phenomenon. And, and when you ever, if you ever read his biography, he is a phenomenon. I mean, he's preaching like five to ten times a week. Uh, thousands of people converted. He pastored the biggest church in the world in his day. Uh, read something like half a dozen books every week. I mean, it really was shocking. Well, these young pastors, they come and visit Spurgeon. They said, Spurgeon, we want to know the secret of your success. Uh, how is it that you're so fruitful, so productive? Uh, because obviously, we, we want to go and do likewise. Well, Spurgeon said, I need to show you my boiler room. Now, by boiler room, especially in those days, they were these dark, hot, smelly, you know, not the sort of place you want to hang out. But they're like, okay, this is Spurgeon. Let's go visit his boiler room. They go down to the basement, and what do they find? They don't find a, like, literal boiler room, but they find a prayer meeting of about 100 people praying together. And he said, this is my boiler room, suggesting that this is what's providing the heat and the fire and the fuel for the church. It's my people praying for me. This really makes me wonder if perhaps a big part of the reason why the church in America has become so ineffective, so powerless, so unfruitful is because we've neglected group prayer. I mean, honestly, we've chosen to neglect it in favor of, say, Wheel of Fortune or Facebook, uh, playing video games or playing golf. So should we be surprised that our marriages are struggling, our families are struggling, our evangelistic witness is struggling, our nation is struggling, our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil is struggling? We've neglected to tap into God's power through the prayer meeting. Listen to what Pastor Joel Beakey writes. The church that does not earnestly pray together cannot hope to experience Reformation and revival. Have we forgotten that the Reformation-era church has often held daily services for preaching and prayer? Is it surprising that biblical Christianity has experienced more revival in South Korea than nearly anywhere else in the world in the last half century when believers there gather 365 mornings a year for prayer at 5 a.m. in the summer and 6 a.m. in the winter? 
May God convict us that we have lost our first love concerning prayer and enlighten us to remember from where we have fallen, how we should repent, and how we are to return to doing the first works. Brothers and sisters, attend and participate in the local church prayer meeting. Now let me share with you a few benefits of attending a prayer meeting. What might happen? What benefits might I accrue if I begin attending and week after week, month after month, year after year? Let me give you several benefits. First, at your local church prayer meeting, you'll learn how to pray. At your local church prayer meeting, you'll learn how to pray. Now, let me be quick to say the prayer meeting is not the only place you'll learn how to pray. Hopefully, you've got parents who are praying for you. Hopefully, you're praying a lot in your private closet, learning how to pray that way. We've got Sunday school teachers who lead in prayer, Bible study leaders who lead in prayer. Hopefully, you're paying attention in the worship service to the pastoral prayer and the other prayers that are praying. Through carefully listening to those and then sort of imitating those at home, you can learn how to pray. All that is true, and yet the local church prayer meeting is somewhat unique in that you've got a very wide variety of people praying. Yes, I, the pastor, pray, but you also have, say, an elderly couple praying, and a stay-at-home mom praying, and a recently converted single man praying. You've got a factory worker praying, an international student praying, perhaps some of our teenagers praying. It's an opportunity to hear the prayers of the widest variety of believers and to listen to their unique contributions. That can teach you much how to pray. And just imagine, you attend a prayer meeting faithfully, year after year, month after month, decade after decade, and when you attend and not only uh, sit there, but listen carefully, and when you not only listen carefully, but start participating yourself, maybe you know, real short prayers at the beginning, but you know, gradually over time participating more and more, can you see how that would fairly effectively teach you how to be a person fully devoted to prayer? Quickly, a second benefit of attending and participating in a prayer meeting. Second, at your local church prayer meeting, others can pray for you when you lack the strength to pray for yourself. At your local church prayer meeting, others can pray for you when you lack the strength to pray for yourself. Now, this is something that until you go through it, you might not even understand what I'm talking about. But there will likely come, in a, come a time in your life when you're so overwhelmed that you find it virtually impossible to pray. You'll be so depressed or confused or frustrated or hopeless or in such great physical or, emo or emotional pain uh, that you try to pray and there are no words and you just start crying. Ever been there? I don't want to sound cynical, but chances are, sooner or later, it's going to happen to you. The Bible recognizes this reality. Listen to Romans 8.26. I realize this is talking about the Spirit, but I think there are applications here. Romans 8.26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, of course, that verse is talking about the Spirit interceding for us, which is a wonderful ministry, and I thank God for it. But that verse is also recognizing there are times that we're weak, that we don't know what to pray for like we should. And similar to how the Holy Spirit prays for us, the prayer meeting can pray for us. I remember vividly an occasion when this happened in this very room. It was probably 15 years ago. A father showed up for Wednesday night prayer meeting. It was before we had the new edition over there. And he was just overwhelmed with concern for his son. Some of you might remember this. I think some of you were there. His son was dealing with mental illness, and because of that, he couldn't hold down a job. And the father was just overwhelmed. And he started describing the situation, and within seconds, he's just weeping uncontrollably. Now, I was a young, ignorant pastor. I, I still am a young, ignorant pastor. Well, I'm not so young, but I'm still an ignorant pastor. But I had the good sense at that time to say, okay, let's all gather around this brother. Let's put our hands on him and pray for him, even though we didn't even fully comprehend what he was saying because he was weeping. I remember that vividly. It was a special, powerful moment. 
And honestly, I would love to see more of that sort of thing taking place in our prayer meetings on a regular basis. If you're depressed, if you're tempted, if you're angry, if you're bitter, instead of lying in bed all day long, or instead of turning to the bottle, drag yourself to prayer meeting and ask others to pray for you there when you can't pray for yourself. Quickly, a third and final benefit to attending and participating in your prayer meeting. At your local church prayer meeting, hopefully, you'll have at least several righteous people praying for your request. At your local church prayer meeting, hopefully, you'll have several, at least several righteous people praying for your request. Now, it's completely true that every believer in Jesus can boldly approach the throne of grace and pray. That's one of the benefits Jesus purchased for all of his people. And it's completely true that the Lord can hear and answer the prayers of people who uh, might not be particularly godly at that moment. I think of Jonah in this regard. I think of the Corinthians in this regard. They were not shining examples of godliness, but God heard their prayers. He can do that. At the very same time, the Bible does teach that the prayers of those whose lives are marked by sincere godliness have a unique effectiveness and a unique fruitfulness. It's like James 5.16 says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, at any local church prayer meeting held by any good church that preaches the gospel, teaches the Bible, you will, without a doubt, have several godly people there. And their prayers can have a power and effectiveness that yours might lack. Again, don't ask me exactly how all of this works. I, I trust God with mysteries and believe there are a lot of them in Scripture. But again, we cannot deny what the Bible teaches, that the prayers of righteous people have a special effectiveness. So let's imagine you've got some especially burden on, some great burden on your soul. You know, maybe you've been diagnosed with cancer. Maybe your loved one's diagnosed with cancer. Maybe your teenager has gone astray. Maybe you need discernment, trying to figure out what vocation God's calling you to. Maybe your marriage is in trouble. Maybe you've totally lost your assurance of salvation. Maybe you just lost your job. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Some great, deep burden on your soul. Instead of griping and worrying about it, instead of gossiping and complaining, I'd encourage you to run to the prayer meeting. Share your burden. Have your brothers and sisters lift you up. And since, again, we'll have several righteous people there, the likelihood of God hearing and answering your prayers positively is quite, quite great. Those are simply some of the benefits of attending prayer meeting. I'm sure you could think of more. But suffice it to say, a billion years from now, you'll probably regret all the time you spent scrolling through your phone. A billion years from now, you'll probably regret all the time you spent on TV, video games, just goofing off. I know I will. But a billion years from now, you will never regret attending a prayer meeting. I want to ask you frankly, my brothers and sisters, if you believe what God's Word teaches about the power of prayer, why wouldn't you attend prayer meeting? If you believe what God's Word teaches about prayer, and particularly group prayer, why wouldn't you attend prayer meeting? Now, let me be clear here about those that I'm speaking to. I'm not talking to those who have jobs that require them to be gone on Wednesday nights. If that's you, that's totally understandable. And if you've got a job that requires you to be out and about, that's not the person I'm talking to. Additionally, say you're a student and you've got class on Wednesday night. Again, I'm not talking to you. Be faithful with your responsibilities there. I'm also not talking to those with physical disabilities or physical ailments that require you to stay home. Again, don't feel condemnation if that's the case. And also, I'm not talking to those with little kids who need to get to bed early. I'm not addressing any of you here. Instead, I'm talking to those who choose to stay home, again, purely to watch TV. 
or to perfect their golf swing, or to scroll through Facebook. If that's you, why wouldn't you attend a prayer meeting? Do you not actually believe what the Bible teaches on these things? Let me just say quickly, if you are in that category, you're legitimately unable to attend, you know, you've got some sort of true schedule conflict, a couple quick things. First, get on the email list for the prayer requests that we collect before every prayer meeting, and I'll send them to you. Uh, even if you can't be there, get on the email list and then be praying throughout the week for these concerns. Secondly, don't hesitate to send me requests that we'll then pray for. You know, text them in, email them in, even if you can't be there. We're delighted to pray for everybody. So don't hesitate to do that. But again, if you're sitting home just because, you know, you'd rather watch Pat Sajak, maybe reevaluate your motives and what you actually believe. Brothers and sisters, attend and participate in your local church prayer meeting. Now, at this point, I want to address a very common objection you hear about prayer meetings. Uh, and let's, let's address this head-on, uh, that they're painfully boring. You hear this from time to time. And somebody might even be blunt about it. They might say, Pastor, I get what you're saying. I see what the scriptures say, that you know, group prayer is especially effective and fruitful. But they're just so boring. How might we respond to that? Well, it is certainly true that there are things that we can do to make prayer meetings more or less boring. And, of course, the goal is not to make them as boring as possible. Spending all our time talking about some minor health ailment of some obscure relative who doesn't attend our church, uh, probably not a great use of time. Spending all our time telling long stories that have little to do with what we're praying about, again, probably not the best use of our time. Getting sidetracked talking about secular politics or when one person just dominates and talks the entire time. Uh, using unclear jargon or technical terms that most people don't understand. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can do that we should avoid because they do make things more boring and, and aren't really conducive to group prayer. All of that being said, I do think that there's a biblical truth that we need to be reminded of here. And that's this. Realize that the tools God uses to most powerfully save souls and build his church will always be considered boring by the world standards. And I want to talk about this for a little bit because I don't think we get this. The tools that God most uses to powerfully save souls and build his church will always be considered boring by the world's standards. But here's part of, the, part of the thing. That's actually the point. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, this is actually quite a complicated theme that's developed throughout the entire Bible, and I don't have the time to uh, explore it thoroughly now. But concisely... Our world is naturally drawn to the spectacular, to the impressive, to the dramatic. I mean, we prefer to see gigantic explosions more than just like a seed growing into a plant. We prefer to watch billion-dollar Marvel movies than a farmer working his field. We're so naturally drawn to the spectacular, the amazing, the impressive. You know, we can be watching the Super Bowl take place in Los Angeles, watching it at home in our living room, and just be, our, our socks are knocked off. You know what I'm saying? Now, one unfortunate side effect of that is that we begin to assume that it is these spectacular, mind-blowing, jaw-dropping experiences that really change the world. There's really very little room in our thinking for the farmer who patiently sows his seed and then gathers his crop. That kind of thinking, it creeps into the church, and we begin to think that every single church gathering has got to be jaw-dropping, mind-blowing, knock your socks off, and if it's not, we're wasting our time. We've got to reject that kind of thinking wholesale, brothers and sisters. Realize, brothers and sisters, in God's mysterious providence, he more often than not uses the ordinary to do the extraordinary. 
He more often than not uses unimpressive, mundane things to do supernatural things. And honestly, I think that this is an application of that James 4.6 principle, how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, for example, when you think about the Savior, when he came to earth, he did not come as some sort of incredible, powerful Roman general, but as a humble Galilean carpenter. The first disciples who went on to change the world, they were not philosophers or politicians, but fishermen and tax collectors. So also today, God chooses to change lives through things that the world is going to consider boring, through, say, a sermon and not a Marvel movie. He's going to answer prayer requests, not through, say, fireworks shows, but providentially, working in people's lives, working in people's hearts. This is the way he does his work so that he receives all the glory. It's like God says in 1 Corinthians 1.26, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is a truth that I think it's part of the better part of Christian maturity to understand and embrace. Reading the Bible will never be as sort of thrilling as watching TV. Praying will never be as exciting as watching the Super Bowl. But here's the thing. If I really believe that God works through these tools for the salvation and sanctification of people, I'll embrace them and use them even if they don't give me the goosebumps that I'm looking for. Am I making sense? And honestly, I think God chooses to do it this way so that we must engage with these means in faith. I think this is actually intentional. It's not just like a coincidence. I think God intentionally uses what the world finds a little bit dull so that we engage with it in faith. God really values faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We walk by faith and not by sight. Therefore, God made these means, again, less spectacular in the world's eyes so that we do them only because we believe God's promise. We believe the prayer of a righteous man is effective, so I'm going to pray. We believe that when God's people gather, there's effectiveness there. Even if I don't get the goosebumps and the liver quivers, I believe God's word, and therefore I give myself to the things that God uses, chooses to use. Brothers and sisters, attend and participate in your local church prayer meeting. For again, God has chosen to use these unimpressive, mundane prayer meetings to do life-changing, world-changing works for his glory. Now, at this point, let me give you some suggestions for better participating in a prayer meeting. And these will apply not only for a prayer meeting, but for any time you're praying with other people. Realize the dynamics of praying as a group are different than praying individually. I know that might sound weird, but let me explain what I mean. When you pray as a group, you almost have to imagine it like a choir. Now, when you think of a choir, is a choir just a bunch of individuals who happen to be in the same room singing? No, not at all. A good choir, you're listening to one another, responding to one another, harmonizing together. You're singing basically as one organism. You following me? So also, a proper prayer gathering ought to have that same sort of uh, give and take, praying together as one organism. I'm listening to your concerns. I'm praying for them. I'm, I'm responding back and forth. We're praying as a group, not just a bunch of individuals who happen to be praying together in the same room. Because of that, let me give you a few suggestions. First, whenever you pray in a group, use plural pronouns. Whenever you pray in a group, use plural pronouns. Don't pray, I pray for this or that. Pray, we pray for this or that. Uh, not, I thank you for this or that, but we thank you. Unless it's something that's totally unique to yourself, 
You know, for example, sometimes I pray for help when I'm preaching because I'm the only one preaching. But in general, we pray, we thank, use plural pronouns. It reminds everybody uh, that we're praying together as one organism. Here's another suggestion. When you pray in a group, pray brief, simple prayers. When you pray in a group, pray brief, simple prayers. Obviously, very complicated sentence structure. People can tune out and not know what you're talking about. Uh, If you use big vocabulary that a lot of people don't know what you're talking about, it can encourage people to tune out. Uh, You're trying to display how learned you are, which again, in our pride, we're tempted to do. Not helpful. And actually, when you're doing that, you're not praying anymore, you're sinning. Uh, So I'd encourage you to pray brief, simple, to-the-point prayers. Now, in the way that we do it in our prayer meeting, you can actually pray multiple times. So say you pray for one request, and later on you feel compelled to pray again, jump back in again. And if you feel compelled again later, jump back in. Uh, so that you could just kind of pray all over the place as opposed to one person praying on and on and on for 20 minutes straight. Follow me? Here's another suggestion. Listen carefully to the prayers of others and verbalize your affirmation from time to time. Listen carefully to the prayers of others and verbalize your affirmation from time to time. Again, we're praying. It's not just you praying and I'm sitting there. We're praying. It's kind of like this. Say two or three people show up at the door. One person's the spokesperson, but you got two or three people standing next to the person. Obviously, the two or three people there are intended to communicate that we're standing with this person, standing for the same things as this person. You understand what I'm getting at? That sort of mentality ought to permeate our group prayers. And one of the ways that we remind ourselves and others of that is by affirming them verbally from time to time. So to be specific, say somebody prays something you're particularly concerned about, say a hearty amen or yes, Lord, or something of that nature. That can encourage the one praying and it can also help you to pay better attention. I'd actually like to see more of this in my sermons as well. Thank you. Let me show you something. I want to, I want to show you how this is not something that comes from like the rural American South, but I think we see hints of this even in the Bible itself. Look up here at 1 Corinthians 14, 16. Now, I realize we're dropping right into the middle of a complicated argument on some controversial issues, but notice at least how the amen is working here. Paul says, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Now, again, there's a lot going on in this chapter, a lot of controversial stuff going on in this chapter, but notice at least the way in which there's one person praying a prayer of thanks and another person affirming that prayer by saying amen. And if you go into the Old Testament, this was actually the norm, people saying amen aloud on a regular basis. So again, that is not something that comes from you know rural West Virginia, but there seem to be hints of it in the Bible. Now, can this go over the top and people get way out of hand? Yes, I've seen that. Uh, you know, I've seen people yelling amen like every five seconds, and, and that can be a little bit distracting. But I mean, let's be honest. Is, are we anywhere near that kind of culture here? I mean, I don't, I don't think yet that's our great temptation. Um, so until that becomes a great temptation, I would encourage you to do a little bit more affirmation, verbal affirmation, both in prayers and in sermons. Quickly, a couple more suggestions. Pray loud enough so that those around you can hear. This one shouldn't take a ton of explanation, but pray loud enough for those around you to hear. In this regard, I'm reminded of John, uh, pardon me, 1141. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around so that they might believe that you sent me. If we're going to pray in a group, there's really no sense in just mumbling or praying so quietly that people can't understand what you're saying. 
know, again, we're praying together as one organism. Therefore, speak loud enough so that people can hear you. Here's another one. When praying in a group, fight the temptation to preach or admonish others in your prayers. When praying in a group, fight the temptation to preach or admonish others in your prayers. Now, thankfully, I've not encountered much of that in this congregation, but I have encountered it in other contexts where people turn their prayers into kind of like a little sermonette to admonish people they think are wayward. Uh, Raise your hand if you know it. Has anybody experienced this? So they might pray, uh, uh, Lord, help us to love your church and to make sure that we're here for the quilting bee on Sunday at 11 o'clock, and if we're not here, cause us to feel very ashamed. Um, you know, that, that kind of thing is, is not helpful. Uh, it can get particularly bad when politics come up. You know, uh, Lord, please help all of us to love our country and to be there on Tuesday to vote this or that way for president this or that. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I'd really discourage that sort of thing. Don't turn your prayers into an opportunity to admonish others or to give a little sermonette, make them actually talking to God, giving him thanks and asking for this or that. Here's one final suggestion. We're almost done. I want you to think about this one deeply. But realize your public prayer life will almost certainly be an overflow of your private prayer life. Realize your public prayer life will almost certainly be an overflow of your private prayer life. In other words, if you pray fruitfully, sincerely at home, you'll probably pray that way in public as well. Now, is it true that there are certain people that become these sort of professional hypocrites uh, that are just as ungodly as the day is long, and yet they can pray long, eloquent prayers? Yes, they exist. But they are more the exception than the rule. In general, if your private prayer life is healthy, your public prayer life will be healthy. In general, if your private prayer life is lively and earnest, your public prayers will be lively and earnest. Therefore, what this means is that if you want to become more effective in group prayer, spend more time alone with the Lord, calling on his name. Those are just a few suggestions for more fruitfully praying in a group. But if you desire to saturate your life with prayer, again, attend and participate in your local church prayer meeting. That will bless your present life and the life which is to come. And in the event anybody is curious, our prayer meeting takes place every Wednesday night, The big back room down the hall, everybody is invited and welcome to come. Well, to conclude our time this morning, and really to wrap up this entire mini-series, I want us to think about why we pray. I mean, why is it that we pray? What's the foundation of our prayers? What's the fuel for our prayers? What is it that at the end of the day is going to motivate us to figure out how to pray without ceasing? Realize the answer to that question is not any of the strategies we've discussed in this miniseries. Don't get me wrong, the strategies we've discussed in this miniseries, I believe they're helpful, I believe they're worth employing, and they can help a lot in your prayer life. But at the end of the day, they alone will not give you the fuel and the motivation that you need to persevere in praying without ceasing. At the end of the day, there's only one thing that will move us to figure out how to pray, that will motivate us to pray, And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14. The love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and rose again. You want to pray more? You want to pray better? What you need most is, again, not one of the strategies that we've talked about. What you need most is to be overwhelmed by the love of God in Christ. As you come to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, that's where you'll find the motivation and the fuel that you need to figure out how to pray without ceasing. 
And that love is displayed nowhere more powerfully and beautifully than in the gospel. What's the gospel, you ask? The gospel is the message that you were made to know God. This is why we exist. This is how we're different from animals and plants. You were made to know God in a personal way as your heavenly father. And that relationship is to be expressed in this thing we call prayer. But the fact of the matter is you've sinned. You've rebelled against your creator. You've tried to live life your own way without any regard to how God designed it to be lived. You tried to live as if there is no God when he is in reality a loving heavenly father who loves to care for us. And our prayerlessness is only one example of thousands of ways whereby we've turned our backs on God. Now, because God is holy and righteous, he will punish us for our sins. He must. He'll pour out his wrath on us for our sins, both in this life and in the life to come. And unless we are forgiven, unless we have a Savior, unless we are reconciled to our Creator, we will suffer the wrath of God eternally in that real place called hell. But under those very circumstances, God and His great love, God did something to heal and to restore the relationship we destroyed. God lovingly provided a Savior, a Savior for all people, a Savior who is His own Son. God the Father sent God the Son, His promised Messiah, down to earth. God the Son was born as a little baby to the Virgin Mary. He grew up, lived the perfect, sinless life we should have lived. He was obedient in every way, including in this prayer life. He prayed without ceasing. And you've probably heard his name before. His name is Jesus. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that he died a horrible death. When he's in his mid-30s, he's arrested, falsely found guilty, nailed to a cross where he bleeds and dies. But the Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus is bearing the wrath of God deserved by sinners. This is how God can remain holy while forgiving those of us who have rebelled. By punishing his son in our place, his wrath is taken away. His justice is upheld. And therefore, he can turn to sinners and say, I forgive you. I am reconciled to you, all based upon what my son has done. Three days after his death, God the Father raised Jesus back from the dead to demonstrate that our hope is not in vain. And now, in response, Jesus is calling you. He's admonishing you. He's commanding you. Turn to me and be saved. Turn to me. Stop running from me. Stop trying to live your own life. Stop trying to live according to your own drummer. Turn to me. Rely on what I have done in my death, in my resurrection. Rely on that. Be made instantly, permanently right with God forever. This is why Jesus came to earth, to reconcile sinners to God. And until we're reconciled to God, our prayers are worse than meaningless. They're actually sin. So in conclusion, I beg you to trust Jesus now. Turn and trust him now. If you never committed yourself, body and soul, to the Lord Jesus, do it right now, this moment. Turn from sin, embrace his loving leadership, rely on his death and resurrection, enter back into that relationship with your creator that you were made for in the beginning. Trust Jesus now. And as always, if any of you would like to discuss these things further, need clarification on anything that I've said, would like somebody to pray with you, pray for you, talk to me after the service, I'll be under the overhang to greet people on the way out. But come to Jesus today, and today begin experiencing God, your creator, as a prayer-hearing Heavenly Father. Let's close in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of prayer. Forgive us of taking it for granted, thinking lowly of it, ignoring it, neglecting it. Lord, it really is a sign of our sinfulness and worldliness that we neglect prayer. We do thank you that Jesus died for all of our sins, including our prayerlessness. But Lord, again, we 
we want to change, we want to grow. So please, work in us individually. Work in our families. Work in our church. Make us people that pray without ceasing. Lord, open our eyes to understand to a greater degree the depth and height and breadth and depth of the love of God in Christ. And we pray that that would provide the fuel we need to pray. And Lord, if any of these strategies that we've gone over were helpful, uh, give us grace and strength to put them into practice. Again, Lord, make us a church that prays without ceasing. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.